the, the mini lesson that follows Create a Chasm is called An Audience of One. And what happens is comics, the, the kernel that often becomes a joke is something they find funny. Like they think, ah, that's hilarious to me. And now, of course, what comics often find hilarious, the rest of the world finds completely offensive, you know, because they just have different standards. But what the, what the, the comic will do is, I think this premise is funny. I'm going to start fussing around with it. And then I'm going to adjust it. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our Made to Stick miniseries, Dr. McGraw's newest book. So, Peter, in part one, we talked about this principle of reverse it. How about for this second one, let's do create a chasm. What, what does that mean? How do comedians do it? How can entrepreneurs use it? Okay, so I have to admit we're covering my, some of my favorite lessons here. So create a chasm came out of, uh, you know, again, like, like many things that end up becoming sort of important, there were sort of two places that it, that it came out of. So the first one is... I teach an MBA class in marketing management, and I do this lesson where I show my students a sort of stylized results from a, a customer satisfaction survey. And it, and it looks something like this. You know, one, one figure is kind of a U-shaped where customers either love or hate this brand. Let's call it brand A. And the other one is an inverted U where, where no one loves it, no one hates it, everybody sort of sees it in the middle. And it, we'll call that brand B. And I asked my students, which brand would you want to manage? And it's a spirited discussion. It's a debate. People have strong opinions about it. And I make a case to my students that they should lean into brand A. They should like brand A. And, and, and many of them find it aversive because, because of the negativity bias, the fact that there's, a, there's like a sizable set of people who hate the brand. They don't want to deal with that, right? You know, that's scary, especially in a, cor- in a world of, of corporations, you know? And, and so, but I say, ignore the haters, but look at all those people who love you. They love you. They don't just like you. They love you. And what do people who love you do? They engage in positive word of mouth. They're less price sensitive. When there's a problem, they complain because they want to, they want to help you make it better. And, and, and so, and there's, there's a lot of research that suggests that why that's a, that's a useful thing. What I realized is at the same time that I was giving this lesson, this was a time where there were a lot of comics who were getting in trouble for jokes that they were telling. You know, even like, even jokes they were telling in a comedy club were being exposed and people halfway across the country were aghast, you know, that, that Bill Burr was saying this or Sarah Silverman was saying this and so on. And what I realized was those comedians are going to keep making those jokes as long as the audience in front, in front of them are roaring with laughter. That is, the comedians are like Brand A, that, that the very same thing that causes you to love them is the sa- very same thing that causes someone else to hate them. And, and as a result, these comedians have loyalty and they, you know, people don't variety seek. They're, oh, Bill Burr's coming to town. I need to see him. Sarah Silverman's coming to town. I need to see her. 
And so I call this create a chasm that in a world that wants uh, that some people want hot tea and other people want iced tea. It's a mistake to serve them all warm tea with the goal of trying to make them happy. And comedians choose hot tea or iced tea. They don't serve warm tea. And so hence this idea of creating this, this chasm in your audience. I just think that's such a powerful idea. It's a scary idea. And it's one that I think that businesses could be better served being bolder and picking, picking this, this you know, sort of chasm creating products and, and marketing communications. Well, I want to talk about this. And, and I'm interested okay. from, from an academic standpoint, because I look at like, <clears throat> well, there's a few things here. But by the way, how many years have you been teaching out at the university? I've been at the University of Colorado since 2004. And so how long were you teaching before you finished, before you wrote this newest book, Mage Stick? Oh, so I'm not very good at math, even though I have a PhD in quantitative psychology. Did it, so did it like, come out you know, last year? 15 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, before okay. I started, or, you know, 16 years. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the reason I bring this up is over time, humans, we're so wired for survival, right? And by being, to be acceptable to the group. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about as little kids, as babies, you know, everything comes from the parents. Acceptability in the family means I don't get spankings or I don't get timeouts or like the irrational fear of getting kicked out of the house as like a four-year-old or a seven-year-old or something, right? And yet it feels like we don't necessarily outgrow that when we get older. Like just because such and such group that's criticizing us on Twitter or something like that has a problem with us, it doesn't actually, I don't actually have any like physical, physical survival problems from that usually, right? But we're just so hardwired for this group, accept group acceptance kind of stuff, right? And yet, just like you're alluding to, like so often, those polarizing brands do, do so well financially, right? Instead of the like the, the everything car that's just like blah, right? You know, you look at Mini Cooper when like everybody's buying big giant SUVs and they're like, they, they put a car on a billboard. A, it fits on a billboard. But B, they're like, it's smaller than you think. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they're like, they're intentionalizing, intentionally polarizing you, right? And they like put yes. it on top of an SUV and drive it around New York to show how small it is, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm interested to hear you weigh in on this because my understanding is the word decision comes from the root word that has to do with die. And it's essentially the idea to make a decision, you're killing half of your opportunities to go one direction. Yes, right. And as entrepreneurs, I'm like, no, I want all the money. I don't want to kill <laughs> any of my potential audience. Hence the like temptations to end up with warm tea, you know, yes. we'll, we'll get a little bit for them and a little bit for them instead of like nailing it for one tiny group to say, no, I want to make money from everyone. Why would I, why would I pull back to being hyper-focused on solving problems for entrepreneurs and trying to like help entrepreneurs make enough money to buy our investment from us? Shouldn't I be helping all 300 million Americans? So can you talk about somebody like me who needs to overcome the like insatiable need for group acceptance and be okay being like hyper-focused on my entrepreneur segment at the risk of alienating large portions of other, you know, American investors that don't like the way I phrase things or something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. So, so I, you know, I, it gets referred to in different ways. You know, the monkey mind, I, I think about in the book, the four agreements, I think the most fascinating part about the book, the four agreements is the notion of what he calls human domestication. 
you know, the world is teaching you to behave well. You know, parents want their kids to say yes, not no, and, you know, want to be agreeable and so on. And yet the world of, of entrepreneurship often uh, rewards being a little disagreeable, telling people, now we can't help you go somewhere else, you know. And, and so I think, yeah, I, I think the first thing is, is when you find that making you, that language making you uncomfortable, I say double down on that language, you know, because the, the more you alienate, to the, this is the difference between a good comedian and a bad comedian. So a, a, a bad comedian, a like open mic comedian, just offends everyone, right? They, they never, they are never successful. And, and maybe for a moment, we'll step back for a second, just because people We've teased them about what makes things funny. But in, in my work in, in the Human Research Lab in Hurl, we find that, that people laugh at things that are wrong yet okay, things that are threatening yet safe, what we call benign violations. And this explains, for example, the two ways that a joke can fail. It can be completely okay and boring, or it can be completely wrong, completely a violation and offensive. And you're looking for that sweet spot that connects those two together, the thing that, that is wrong yet okay. But what happens is, this is fascinating, is what's wrong and what's okay depends on the values, beliefs, preferences, context, even the number of cocktails that your audience has, ha has and, and ha has had. And so the problem, as we, as we talked about in part one, is that we live in a diverse world, the world of heterogeneity, where there are different cultures and there's different needs and there's different values and there's different beliefs. And so what ends up happening, of course, is if you try to make everyone happy, you know, you can't, you can't make anyone happy. And so what I say to you as you're approaching this new, this new project is the more you get to know that individual investor, the more you'll realize they have different needs than these institutional investors and so on. And, and as a result, you can then create something that is simultaneously better for them and worse for others. One of my favorite stories is from Ben Horowitz's excellent book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things where he talks about launching Andreessen and Horowitz, the VC fund. And what they realized was they couldn't out-VC the existing VC funds. They had deeper pockets, they had better track records and so on. But they honed in on this idea that some founders want to take their business to the next level and don't want to be pushed out. They want to become a, a grown-up CEO. And so then they leaned into that group of people and of course, they have the best value proposition, which is we did it ourselves and we can teach you how, how to do it and provide the network and so on. That simultaneously made them less appealing to other founders who just wanted a quick exit and, and big bucks and then move on to the next kind of thing. But again, it's uncomfortable. And anytime you find yourself being a little bit uncomfortable, as long, it's fine. That's good. That's a good indicator. It's just, you have to make sure you're making that audience in front of you laugh, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I think what I want advice on, so I love that. And I think the next question I want advice on is how to like emotionally conquer that about myself. So like in our case, so we're doing a, a jobs act regulation D 506 C offering, which just means even though it's a private deal, I'm allowed to publicly solicit, but I'm only allowed to accept money from accredited investors. Okay. Cause okay. normally it'd be illegal to talk about your investment on a open forum like this, right. Until the jobs act came out 2016. So I can talk to anybody about it. And the, the thing is I have polarized some folks cause we're going after the entrepreneurs who have bet it all on red and been burned, lost all their money doing stuff. Right. 
So we mm-hmm. want us we want people to put money into our management company that's going to build this big giant REIT. We're going to try and raise, you know, over the next 15 years we want to raise 5 billion dollars, right? So we need a bunch of startup right. money. Say we need 5 million bucks a year for our overhead to try and create a 5 billion dollar firm, right? So we need that for at least two, three, maybe four years before the REIT is big enough that it pays our fees and it's a self-sustaining sustaining system. So realistically, we probably only need to raise 15 or 20 million bucks to do something like okay. this, right? Yeah, easy. Another 15 or 20 million. Well, in the world of, you know, $7 trillion BlackRock or $500 billion Blackstone, it's all just decimal points, right? Yeah, it's right. a huge amount of money, don't get me wrong. But Compared to the guys we're competing against, we're a rounding error. You know that's I mean? great. So that, for, first of all, I want to stop you right there. Again, that, to me, that's an advantage. You know what I mean? Like, there's something in that phrase right there to, to not ignore. Okay. What do you yeah. mean? What do you mean? Well, you have to think about it, right? Like, that the, you have to be different, right? You have to find a way to be different in a way that is going to be appealing to your target market, right? So the idea essentially is how is it that BlackRock is not an appealing option in the marketplace? Well, and, and my quip, no, go on, I'm sorry. No, finish your sentence. I get excited and interrupt people. Oh yeah, no, no. So, so, so to me, I think like what often seems like a problem at first is actually a, an advantage, you know? And so, so the, the BlackRocks of the world, you know, they're behemoths. And so what makes, what makes them weak for being a behemoth? What makes them a, an imperfect fit because they're <laughs> yeah. a behemoth? Right. Well, they, they don't have the time to have personal relationships with individuals. I was that's just, that's yeah. the one thing, right? They have basically almost every other advantage, but that's a disadvantage compared to us. Right. So here's the thing. I, you know, emotionally, like I like to be, you know, I hang out with all these like, you know, special mission unit operators, special ops guys from our charity child rescue. And, you know, I like try to be manly and tough and stuff. Right. And yet I went and met with a couple of really experienced finance guys, good friends of mine. One's a 25 year wall street guy. Another guy's got uh, like 600 million under management. Right. And I'm explaining to him this thing of like, okay, so instead of just raising 15 million and, and living off that money for three years till the REIT's going, we're going to raise a hundred million. We're not going to spend mm. any of it. We're just going to buy like boring, reliable apartment complexes that'll produce five million dollars a year cash flow. We'll live off the rent for for three, four years, however long it takes us to build this REIT. And if mm. I somehow manage to go out of business or die in a plane crash, you guys just sell the original buildings and get your hundred million back, I right? See. So it's like this built-in insurance yeah. policy. Well. I'm like so proud of myself because that's exactly what I want to buy because unfortunately I made enough money to retire in my 20s two different times and managed to lose it all both times. Okay, so I'm like this third time we're not this third time we're not going to lose it, right? So yeah. I'm like you know I'm so proud of myself. Like look at this amazing insurance policy we've built in, right? And I meet with these guys and they're like, wow, that is super capital inefficient. Like you want me to tie up a hundred million dollars instead of fifteen? Like don't you believe you can do this? If you believe you can do it, just raise 15 and go for it. You know, people should be, people should be big boys. If, you know, if they can't take the risk, they, you know, can't take the hit, can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen kind of a thing. Like I I can't imagine tying up an extra $85 million to, to do that. Like that, that's, you know, and I'm just like, Oh no, can't, can't you see? Like it's, it's such a great safety thing. And, and like we're doing first money, first, first money in, first money out. We're actually, we're actually all of our fees are going to buy that hundred million dollars of real estate back at a guaranteed appreciation of five percent per year, and then after that, it's just a royalty. And 
They wouldn't even have at-risk capital. This is going to be great. And they're like, mentally, they're like, yeah, but you're using up 85 million bucks. I could be using, making money with elsewhere. And they're not wrong, right? But, well, but yeah. at the same time, I'm like, I really want their money too. And I, I can't have a both, you know? And, and so like, you know, mentally, I'm like, I should not care that these super fancy Wall Street guys don't like it. Because my entrepreneur buddies are like, hold on, I get to tell my wife. My first two lunch meetings, my entrepreneur, entrepreneur, two of my entrepreneur buddies both said, well, can I put in a million, you know? Ah. And they're like, hold on, hold on. So if this doesn't pan out, I get my, I could get my million back. I mean, obviously there's no guarantee, right? But I mean, it's a reasonable, we're not taking any bank debt. It's a pretty reasonable route, right? Yeah. And they're just like ecstatic. They're like, I can totally get this past the wife. We can put money in for that, you know? Well, I, I mean, but I'm alienating my finance buddies. Yeah, I, hearing you, I'm excited, right? And the, and the reason is, like, these finance guys, you know, they drink a particular flavor of Kool-Aid. You know, they they've been highly rewarded running a script. And what they what what's interesting is the failure to recognize the customers' needs may change. That is, that the risk profile of this typically guy in his 20s and 30s who makes his millions. Some of them, as you know, can't sit on the sideline for long and they're, they're spinning up a new com company or they're starting a VC fund or whatever. They just, there's no, there's no deserted beach that they want to be on. If they do, you know, if they go to, a, they, if they go, you know, they move to an island, the next thing they know, they're opening a bar because they just can't lay on the beach for that long. But others, and this is the beautiful thing about heterogeneity, others they like the fact that they're worth $100 million and they don't want to be worth $90 million because that's a different category, you know? And as you said, they have a family now and they might be supporting a lot of people, you know what I mean? And they have employees that they don't want to have to well, lay off. What the one of them said to me is, I worked really hard for this money. I don't like, I just don't want to risk it. That's right. Yeah. And so, I mean, so I, you know, I got it. Even you the securities regulators are going to hate me for that. Of course, there's a risk. It's an investment. There's no guarantees. Things could happen. But he doesn't want to take he doesn't want to take the typical startup risk of putting it all on red and hope these guys pull it off. Maybe this will be Google. You know. That's right. And also, you know, the thing is, this is all right. So I, ha I have I'll give you two reactions to this. Do with them what you want. I think the first thing is that there's an advantage because I don't trust those Wall Street guys. If I'm in that position. You know what I mean? I know the hanky-panky. I know their motives. I know all that stuff. But Jess, I, I trust you. Not only because you, because of the way you're, you're setting this up, but also you've been through it, right? Why should I believe this as well? Because you put it on, you know what I mean? You made your money and lost it. You made your money and lost it. And you are, you've created a vehicle that minimizes the devastation. The, the second one is, I think there's an idea here with the family, Right. If you have, if you know, like what often happens is these founders are often single, they're solo and they, they can live with the risk. You know, they, they're happy living in a, in a shoe box, you know, with a couch and a mattress on the floor, no big deal. But now they live in a big house in the suburbs, you know? And so there's an idea there with like, this is the fund your wife will like, I mean, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I don't mean it to be gendered, but you know what I mean? But like, this is the fund that your, your partner who craves safety no, but it, but it is true. I think about on our consulting business, our other company, the female CEOs that we advise, 
they've married a husband who does not have the same risk tolerance as them. Like there's that opposites attract thing that's very typical, right? Also, these people's risk tolerance are so high, anyone they marry is going to be lower, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there is that. No, that's great. Yeah. So, I, so it's just a thought, right? It's just a thought. Like, you know, it's like what happens is what comedians do is they're just paying attention to the world. You know what I mean? Like they notice things. So I have I have a good friend Shane Moss who's a special contributor to to Stick to Business. If you if you get the audiobook, he chimes in yeah, in yeah. different places with these stories. And it's a little bit of a palate cleanser and he's much funnier than I am, you know, and so on. And I spend a lot of time with Shane and I'm just my jaw drops the number of times he just picks up on something that just is breezing in one ear and out my other ear. And what I'm saying is these conversations you know what I mean? Like there, there's something that's happening in them that is, I think, giving you little nuggets of opportunity, I think. And, and I know we're about out of time for this principle, but so I really appreciate the feedback. And it actually makes me think I should just be putting that right in my pitch. Who is this not for? People who, people who can't yeah. stand the capital inefficiency of our insurance policy, you're probably not going to like us. And I should yes. maybe own that harder. But my question for you is, I like people so much and I wish I was more popular than I am and I want everybody to think I'm smart and not everybody thinks I'm smart with this strategy. So, you know, I, I was just watching a Joe Rogan interview with Kevin Hart when they're talking about like not reading the comments on YouTube, you know, because yes. it makes them feel bad about themselves or invites them to, right? And any yeah. thoughts about how to uh, emotionally be, okay, be more okay with with having a chasm that not everybody's going to like my 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 plan? Yeah. <laughs> Boy, um, that's a tough one because think about it. If you're struggling with this, with the success that you've had, and with the 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 sh the certainty that you are onto a right idea. How hard is it for, for everyone to deal with this? I mean, I think I, I live with this also. You know what I mean? I think like what I say is the best. So I, I've, I've launched a, crea a chasm creating podcast. So I, I've recently, this is, was a secret project for many, for, for a long time. I've recently launched a podcast about a positive view of single living. It's called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. And I remember being really reluctant to launch it because I was afraid I was going to get a lot of blowback. And, you know, it's not, it's not a typical message you see, you know, in the world. What I've, what I had to do was to be sure that I was providing a lot of value to people who really needed it, that I felt compelled to do it, that I was, and then I, then what I do is I just concentrate on the lovers and I just ignore the haters, you know, in that way. But it is, I don't have the cheat code for that, except to recognize that when some people are very unhappy, it means I'm actually doing something right. So, so you're, you're in Utah. And so uh, I don't know if you ski snowbird. I snowboard. Yeah. Yep. Yes. So snow, so, so snowbird had this really fascinating problem. They were getting one star reviews from people, usually from like Los Angeles or New York city who was complaining that the powder was too deep. And there were too many, you know, bumps and, you know, all this too kind steep. of stuff. Too, too aggressive. Too aggressive. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, imagine you're Snowbird. You're like, well, we could fix these problems. We could do more grooming. We could introduce, you know, more green runs. You know, our run be perfect for the, the New Yorker and so on. They didn't do that. 
you could ignore those one-star reviews, you know, and just focus, you know, and just be like, oh, we're getting plenty of other five-star reviews. Or you could do what Snowbird did, which was run an award-winning ad campaign highlighting the one-star reviews. Essentially saying, if you're Greg from Los Angeles saying this is too aggressive, go somewhere else. Because we, you should believe that we are the ski area for hardcore skiers and snowboarders for the Jesses of the world. You know what I mean? And here's the proof. You're not going to have to deal with those Angelinos and those Texans who are, <laughs> who are wimps. You know? And so I love the idea of you in your deck saying, we're not for everyone. Because most people say that and they don't mean it. They say, we're not for everyone. If you don't want to make money, we're not for you. It's, yeah, it's like such right. a straw man, ridiculous thing. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I agree. But if you can really say it and really mean it. And I mean, you know, so I, I always talk about reasons to believe. You know, why should I believe your brand, your, 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 your brand claims? Is like, <laughs> Jess, I'll tell you this. If you get to a point and you go, I'm not going to take your money. This is not, this fund is going to disappoint you. <laughs> right like if you start behaving in a way that is consistent with what you believe that's one of the best ways to change the way you're thinking and feeling right you know it's like the if you act like a confident person you then can become a confident person and so if you start acting in ways that suggest yeah. <laughs> this chasm you can start thinking in a way that is chasm created as soon as you say that, I think about the other category that doesn't like us. The people that okay. are already, like they already own a $10 million apartment complex or something, right? Yes. Most yes. of those folks are like, hold on, but I got to pay you guys like an additional 1.9% to manage everything. Right. You know, like I'll be the landlord. I don't care. I want to make that money, you know? Yes. And I get them a little bit because I'm buying way bigger buildings than they could buy themselves or I'm buying way more buildings. So there's going to be way more diversity. And so I get some of them that way. But there are people that are like, you're only going to take 40% debt on this thing. Like I take 75, I make way more than you, you know, mm -hmm. in our, in, in the, in the REIT itself, we are much more conservative. We're like trying to compete with like bonds or like dividending stock markets, not with mm -hmm. the top real estate returns anybody's ever gotten. We're just continually reducing that risk because we need it to pay every month, not just the good months. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. So there's, there's also, in addition to the finance people, there's real estate people that are like, you guys are too timid, you know, look at all the returns you're leaving on the table. And I'm like, yeah, but if Corona happens, I don't lose the building in a bankruptcy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, no. And that's, I think that's great, you know, because again, it's a big marketplace. And my guess is that the folks that you're targeting are underserved. You know, these are the kind of people who like annuities, you know, I mean, so psychologically, you know what I mean? They want to be able to plan for the future. They're thinking about legacy. I, I want to plan for the future. I, I, the whole reason this exists is me and my partner, John, this is self-made millionaires, like mentoring me since like I was like 21 years old. We've done these businesses and failures together. We just never want to have to worry about money again. That's why we're doing this. We're building the thing that we wish we could buy because we just want boring income. We, we would never have. So we like literally never have to worry about money again. And then if we want to go do crazy stuff after that, it's like, the minimum, the minimum is locked in, and then we can go up and down above that, but the minimum is locked in. That's the whole reason we're doing this. I think it's great. So this is, I do these mini lessons in the book. So in between chapters, these were, these were ideas that I had that weren't big enough for an entire chapter, but I also didn't want to leave them on the cutting room floor. And so the, the mini lesson that follows Create a Chasm is called An Audience of One. And what happens is comics 
the the kernel that often becomes a joke is something they find funny. Like they think, ah, that's hilarious to me. And now, of course, what comics often find hilarious, the rest of the world finds completely offensive, you know, because they just have different standards. But what the what the the comic will do is, I think this premise is funny. I'm going to start fussing around with it, and then I'm going to adjust it so that my audience will can potentially find it funny. Well, I think a lot of really innovative work comes from a single person who has this pesky mouse that all the mouse traps in the world can't seem to catch. And so they make their own mouse trap just for them. And then what they go is they go, hmm, this might be useful for other people, you know? And so the next thing you know, you have, what's her name who created Spanx? Sarah Blakely. Sarah Blakely, right? Sarah Blakely solves a problem for one pair of pants that she has. So she has these pants that shows panty lines and she, she rigs her pantyhose in order to, to smooth her, her look. And the next thing you know, she's a self-made billionaire, you know, cause she just started in that way. So I think the fact is it's not a guarantee that the, this product or service or solution for the audience of one can scale, but it often means it's unique. And so I think you're really on to something, which is you're essentially, uh, psychologically, I understand what you're doing. You're just like, okay, I just want this cushion. You know what I mean? And, and then after that, everything's, I'm going to mix my metaphors gravy. You know, then I can have fun. There's my play money. You know, I pay all my bills and I know I'll be able to pay all my bills for the rest of my life. And then I can go to Vegas whenever I want on top of that. And if I run out of my Vegas money, then I can just stay home in, in Utah. I'm literally, I'm literally taking notes to work on the, to fix the deck after we get off this interview. Oh, that's <laughs> But yeah, like, and for me, going to Vegas is like trying to do Elon Musk stuff. You know what I mean? But without freaking my wife and four kids out. You know what I mean? Running the account back I, down to zero. I have this, I have this tension. I'll explain this tension in my life, which is I'm an academic. I get a paycheck every month. And it's nice, you know what I mean? Especially in a time where people are losing their jobs. And then what this, what that has allowed me to do is to study humor and to write these books and do all these things that never makes money. You know what I mean? And so I, I have been allowed to, to pursue fun, exciting topics because I have that steady paycheck. Now, if, if this, if, if my book became a bestseller and turned me into a wealthy man, that would be great. I'd be thrilled, but I'm not disappointed when it doesn't because I have this tiered, you know, I have this tiered view of like, okay, I'll never be homeless again. And you know what I mean? And I'll never have to live in my buddy's basement, you know, but I also have some upside and I could take these sort of fun risks, so to speak. I love it. Well, yeah, that's great. I know we covered it in, in episode one of the mini series here, but again, people connect with you on, on LinkedIn. Sounds like it's great. And can you give us your website again? Sure. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's PeterMcGraw.org. So some, some real estate guy got PeterMcGraw.com before me. And I sent him, I tried to buy it from him. He'd never answer my emails. So PeterMcGraw.org. I'm also on Twitter. I do a little bit of tweeting, although <laughs> these days I'm mostly lurking. <laughs> Okay. It's not a good time to be tweeting. And and give us the name of the podcast again. So so the new podcast, my my chasm creating podcast is called Solo: The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. Okay. And and his new book that you should all be buying. I just finished it yesterday. Made to stick on audible.com or if you're if you have to, you can get the paper copy on on Amazon. Okay, thanks everybody. Please tune back in for for part 3 in our Made to Stick mini series.